ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. These high school students from regional New South Wales sound pretty happy now. But getting ready to scale a cliff a few hours previously, they were pushed to their limits. Pretty big. I've never scaled the side of a cliff before. It was really intimidating and I had to be responsible for the next person that came after me. But now sitting at the top, I'm really proud of myself um, because I had a bit of a struggle with it yesterday. But I'm really glad that I was able to push through and make it to the top. You've got to take risks, otherwise you're never going to like get over some fears. In the, like, the middle of the cliff, I was like, I was about to give up. But, you know, I pushed through and, you know, I think that's important to take away that, you know, you sometimes just have to do things and then once it's over, it's great. These girls are some of a declining number of students studying outdoor education in the last few years of high school. Figures show the pressure to prioritise more academic subjects means students are missing out on the skills getting out in the outdoors gives you as you make your way through life. I wouldn't expect that I would have learned anything without my phone because like it's got a whole bunch of information in it but being outside and seeing it all is just like wow more on that on the show i'm Sinead mangan and this is australia wide coming to you from wajak country perth no news to anyone living or traveling in the bush the finding an open branch of one of the major banks is a rarity these days. In the five years until June last year, 1,600 branches have been closed across the country. And banks say running a branch in regional and rural Australia is too costly and digital banking is more convenient. But many customers disagree. A federal inquiry into the closure of rural and regional banks is underway and today, for the first time, the inquiry has held hearings in regional New South Wales. Our reporter, Monty Jacka, is in Junee. Monty, describe to me where you are right now. (laughs) Yes, uh, at the moment I'm in the local Junee club and there's actually quite a few people here. So to get away from the noise a little bit, I've crammed into a children's chair in the um, kids' play section of the local club. Just to get away from the noise, I'm on a table with a tablecloth made of paper that has quite a few lovely drawings over the top of it. It's very glamorous being a regional reporter, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Only the best. Only the best. Now, obviously, Junee was the first stop in the inquiry in regional New South Wales. Why did they choose that particular town? So it's actually here in Junee because of a really big push from the community out here and the local council. Junee is a small town with a population of about 7,000, around 45 minutes from Wagga Wagga. About six years ago, all four of the big major banks were in the town and now there's only one branch left. And even that one was set to be closed earlier this year before the Commonwealth Bank paused all of its regional bank closures due to this inquiry. There's a very prominent older population out here with many retirees in the town and many of them really rely on that face-to-face banking and that's why there was that big push to have that public inquiry here. So how how many people have actually turned out? Yeah, so there actually was a pretty, pretty solid turnout at the start of the day. I'd say the room where the inquiry was being held would have had about 70 or 80 people in there at the start just watching the discussion. That's obviously sort of slowly dwindled sort of as the day has gone on. Um, But even just here in the club, as I mentioned, it's pretty packed and we've heard a fair fair few people just talking about the inquiry amongst themselves and sharing their opinion about the um, potential bank closure. 
So, Monty, what are people saying about, you know, they've seen bank services erode over time. What are they saying about how that's impacted their lives? People here are really worried about what it's going to mean for them if that last bank in Juni does close. We spoke to some women who don't have internet, they don't have phones, and the prospect of having to do online banking is actually quite daunting for them. Many elderly people actually that we've spoken to here, actually they know that they're the number one victim of scams. So the thought of speaking to someone over the phone or through text or on an app to make a big financial decision is pretty scary for them. We've heard that in a town like Junee, if the last bank does close and online banking isn't an option, like it isn't for many of the people here, they're pretty much left with driving the 45 minutes to Wagga Wagga to do their banking. That's obviously an hour and a half return trip and also probably a solid amount of petrol. Some people have also raised concerns that if they have a disability or they don't have a license, they're going to have to rely on family or friends to get to Wagga Wagga to do that banking, which takes away a lot of their independence and creates some pretty stressful situations. Is there even a bus service between Juni and Wagga Wagga? There is, but what we've heard from residents is that it's not exactly reliable and the um, it's not always going at the same time or on, and it's not very regular. So a significant impact on people's lives if that Commonwealth Bank um, branch decides to close down. In terms of the, the inquiry itself, what was their line of questioning when people were, were providing evidence? Yeah, the inquiry, they've been really keen to hear from residents and the local council about how much the banks are actually used in towns like Juni on a daily basis. And that's because obviously... The main argument from banks has been that it's not worth it to keep these banks open when there's less and less people using them. But we've heard some accounts today which really highlight just how important those banks are to those people who do use them. The local council told the inquiry that they'd done some studies of their own and they found that 26 people enter the last bank here in Juni each hour, which obviously that's not a small amount. Mm. And is the Commonwealth Bank itself represented? So no, from what I've seen, the Commonwealth Bank hasn't spoken at the inquiry today, but all four of the major banks were questioned at the inquiry yesterday. And during that, uh, Commonwealth Bank CEO Matt Komen said the call to close regional banks was not a hasty decision. He also highlighted that only 25% of the bank's closures in the past four years have been in regional areas. And he says that there's a lot of consideration that's being put into consumer demand and behaviours, the availability of other banking services when they decide to um, close a branch or not. So, Monty, what happens? So they've heard from Junie today. Where does the inquiry go from here? So this is the last public hearing that's listed on the, um, on the website. So the members of the inquiry will now head off with everything that they've heard and they've been given until the last sitting day in May 2024 to hand down their findings. Monty, Jacka and Junie, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thank you. You can stretch your legs now. You can stand up yeah. by the side out yeah, of that, no, that little children's chair that you're in. Yeah, there's some <laughs> children walking around as well that probably want to get in here and they're probably a bit scared of what I'm doing. <laughs> Thanks again. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. Thousands of families around Australia are caring for young relatives who can't live with their biological parents, many out of the goodness of their hearts. But mounting pressures during a cost of living crisis are making it harder for kinship carers and experts say it's time for the federal government to help them. Emma DiGostino has the story. 12-year-old Charlie moved in with her aunt Rebecca just over a year ago. I felt it was what was needed in order for Charlie to have a better life. It's a form of care known as kinship care when family members take in children who can no longer live with their biological parents. 
Rebecca has three children of her own and has given up work to care for Charlie, a difficult balancing act facing thousands of families across the country. It is a struggle, but I manage to do what I can do to make sure the kids are happy. The latest data says there are more than 24,000 children in kinship care in Australia. But University of Melbourne researcher Meredith Karali says the true number is much higher. To the best of my knowledge, there are well over 100,000 children in informal kinship care, but we won't really know for sure until there's a better census question. Informal kinship care arrangements aren't organised by child protection or the courts. They're made by families like Rebecca and Charlie's, stepping up in times of need. I have no support. It's Charlie and I. We're on our own in this situation. Rebecca has asked for help from child protection before in a bid to get Charlie's support. The department's attitude towards it is Charlie's safe, so they don't need to intervene. Experts say these informal kinship care arrangements are propping up the child protection system and families need funding and access to support services. Dr Karali points to New Zealand as a model, which pays an allowance to informal kinship carers. Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare Chief Executive Deb Sabaris says the cost of living is affecting carers of all types, leaving the out-of-home care system in a precarious state. Oh, I think it's a travesty when there are tens of thousands of these carers across the country and they are invisible uh, to the Commonwealth Government. And they've got a lot of levers here that they could pull. The federal government told the ABC it was aware of the issue, but said it's up to the individual states and territories to address. A Victorian government spokesperson said it provided support to home-based carers, including kinship carers, through an allowance to help with day-to-day -day expenses of caring for a child. Statutory kinship carers in Victoria received a $650 supplementary payment at the end of May, and the state government has established a help desk for statutory kinship and foster care families. But none of these options are available for informal care of families like Rebecca and Charlie's. Charlie says it's not fair that they get treated differently. They should treat the kids that come through informal kinship the same as the kids that go through the service. Angie is struggling to get access to her five-year-old nephew's birth certificate after she became a carer unexpectedly. I had a knock at the door from a family member who had the child with them after they had witnessed some family violence and I basically took him in from there. It was a complete life change for the 40-year-old professional career woman who is working full-time. Her nephew is now her priority and Angie is living off her life savings to help care for him. She receives a Victorian state government allowance, but says it's not enough to pay for specialist support to address her nephew's medical needs. It's really challenging because you just want to do what's best for the child. But when you have all of these barriers, it's like a constant, um, yeah, it's constantly red tape everywhere you turn. I mean, a child doesn't ask to be put into this situation. That was Angie ending that story there from Emma D'Agostino. Youth crime is an issue in many regional towns across the country, but how communities choose to tackle the problem can vary greatly, as do the levels of success. In one remote Queensland community, residents have adopted a unique approach, and so far, it seems to be working. And beyond just preventing youth crime, the initiative has taken it one step further by providing employment opportunities for locals wanting to get involved. From Mornington Island, reporter Julia Andre has this story. In the Gulf of Carpentaria, an issue that's impacting large parts of Queensland has also been hurting this small outback community. On Mornington Island, residents are taking youth crime issues into their own hands with specialised training as local patrol officers. I thought it was just home, but it's all around, far spread, widespread through Queensland, probably throughout Australia at this current time. So as you're aware, you know, security costs a lot of money. And where 
actually using our own mob now. We're doing a couple of patrols here, there. We're working with the police. We're working with our current security guards on the island. That's Mornington Shire Council Mayor Carl Yanner. He believes youth crime is decreasing in the remote community since employing locals to do nightly foot patrols on the island's streets three months ago rather than fly-in, fly-out workers. Local people, who better to guard your own town than your own mob? We're not like outsiders. Our mobs say, hey, who you? Go away. Um, you know, we're like, mate. What the hell are you doing out? Come on, you know, and we just send them home. It's just, it's so much easier and so more effective. Farah Linden is one of 18 local residents who've completed training to be part of the foot patrols. So far, she believes youth on the streets are listening to the local patrol workers. They know the kids, you know, there's kinship here um, and the kids do have, you know, a certain amount of respect for their families who are undertaking these jobs. So, you know, I think the end goal is that we see less youth crime within that community because when they know that it's their own mob who are actually working and they're in these positions of security guards, you know, there may, may be um, a higher level of respect you know, for, for those positions and those roles. So I think it's a great opportunity. Ms Linden says she'd like to see more locals involved in the patrol. I think they've really liked it because we've had quite a few people who now have expressed an interest in actually doing the course themselves. And, um, yeah, it's sort of given them the confidence that they too can do something, you know, because I've done it, you know. Um, it's been really um, it's been really good. So a lot of people now are talking about even younger people. You know, we've tried to inspire young people to put their hands up for the next training course. A recent audit by KPMG of government services on the island found that local residents were frustrated by the lack of training, employment and educational opportunities available to them close to home. That's reflected in data from the 2021 census, which shows that 76% of Mornington Island's First Nations population over the age of 15 did not participate in the labour force. Councillor Yenner believes the patrol training program is one way to change that. Not only is it good getting paid a, a real a real wage, but it's rewarding servicing your own community, you know, doing your own roads, doing them how we want to do them. It's just a great feeling and it's even better feeling seeing our mob shine where they like to shine. Reporter Julia Andre with that story from Mornington Island in Queensland's Gulf of Carpentaria. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. As we go to air, there's still fires burning across New South Wales and it's a scene that's all too familiar for the small town of Rankin Springs in the Riverina region. Once described as hanging on to life, the tiny village is emerging from the embers of historic pub fires and devastating droughts to secure its survival. The resurgence at Franken Springs near Griffith is being led by a stubborn community bonded by their shared historical connection. Residents say the town had to overcome massive odds to reach its centenary, which is being celebrated this month. Conor Burke has this story. One of Jamie Parsons' earliest memories is standing alongside dozens of other families in 1996, watching the Conopara Hotel go down in flames. The pub was next to a general store. In front of the general store was a little island, um, grass island there. And, yeah, just a bunch of us were sitting on that and watching the, the flames go higher. That was uh, pretty frightening to a four-year-old, but, yeah. The blaze was the fourth time that Rankin Springs' only pub had burned down in just 80 years. 
Fellow fourth-generation resident Jonathan Street says its destruction meant farmers and families were left without their vital watering hole during a very rough period for the community around the turn of the century. The millennium drought was weighing heavily on the town, forcing small farmers to sell their land and leading to many residents, including Jonathan himself, moving away for work. There was a whole lot of work here and it was probably a quiet era in the in, from this town, um, a lot of the small farmers were getting bought out by the big farmers and um, a lot of people were sort of leaving the community because there was obviously no work here um, and there was some pretty bad drought years in the early 2000s as well. It took significant community effort, but the beloved pub was finally rebuilt in 2006. It passed hands a few times over the next decade before Jonathan purchased the business after the COVID pandemic. He says the hotel is crucial to the community. Mate, it's... Uh Pretty much everything. Um, everything happens through here, as in um, community meetings. Um, it's the heart of this small community because you've only got to come out here on a Thursday or Friday night and, you know, there might be seven or 80 people in here and um, this place, just everyone comes to here to, 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 talk, to talk, basically, and it's probably the biggest part of the community. Like, and the town really struggled there for patches when it didn't have a pub. The town was originally called Freshwater Spring and located 10 kilometres west from its current location. It was established as a pit stop on the stock route from Lake Cajelago to Witten, but was moved in 1923 to coincide with the opening of the Rankin Springs Railway Station. Jamie says the exact origin of the town's name isn't known, but there are some popular theories. There's a lot of um, theories about it. There's a few families called Rankin who are around the area. One family came from Tumut and owned a certain amount of cattle stations and one was said to discover the, the spring, the freshwater spring, which is out at the old hotel site. And Rankin Springs came about, and it wasn't really recorded, but that's the story. There's a few other theories that I'm not sure about, but yeah. An article by the Canberra Times in the early 1980s described Rankin Springs as a small, hot, dusty township, which was hanging on to life. The article claimed better roads and grander shopping was luring people to nearby Griffith, while Rankin Springs was being paired back to essential services. Despite the challenges over the years, the town's now growing its population, which currently sits at 208 according to the latest census. Enrolment at the local primary school has jumped from 9 to 31 over the last two decades, and the town's even formed its own rugby team. Jamie credits the resilience of his hometown to the historical bond forged by so many families having lived in the area since its inception. You know, it's our town, our, our community. We're all quite close. A lot of people put a lot of work into the community over years and it's a, it's a good thing to celebrate that we've made it to 100. Kayleen Hudson is the secretary of the town's Country Women's Association. She says the town's ability to bounce back from challenging years reflects the perseverance of its residents. It's a sleepy little hollow, but it doesn't look like much, and then all of a sudden it comes alive. Most people do their own thing, but at the end of the day, if anything should happen, if there's a tragedy or somebody something happens to somebody, they're always there. Lasagna in the freezer for you. It's the mark of a community. It's now the lasagna in the freezer for you. That was Kayleen Hudson finishing that story from Connor Burke, and there was additional reporting by Monty Jacka. You're listening to Australia Wide. They've terrorised our poor sheep. They've terrorised our peacocks. Chased away all our chickens. Yeah, it's been a bit hectic. <laughs> um, yeah, they're reasonably commonish as far as snakes go here around the resort. On ABC Radio. Outdoor education builds confidence, resilience 
and independence, but less students are choosing to study it because teachers say there's pressure to study more academic subjects to get into university. Our reporter Gillian Area met with some students and their teacher Shelby Hackett who were climbing Mount Arapiles in Western Victoria to hear what they took away from the experience. Against the backdrop of a sandstone mountain, a dozen girls sit on wooden picnic benches braiding each other's hair, their backpacks, harnesses and helmets piled in the centre. These teenagers made the four-hour drive from Geelong near Melbourne to climb an abseil down Mount Arapiles in Western Victoria for their outdoor education unit, a subject that will count towards their final score to enter university. This is pretty big. I've never scaled the side of a cliff before. <laughs> it was really intimidating and I had to be responsible for the next person that came after me. But now, sitting at the top, I'm really proud of myself. Um, because I had a bit of a struggle with it yesterday, but I'm really glad that I was able to push through and make it to the top. And I think it's a really good achievement. I think it's really cool. You've got to take risks, otherwise you're never going to like get over some fears. In the, like, the middle of the cliff, I was like, I was about to give up. But, you know, I pushed through, and, you know, I think that's important to take away, that, you know, you sometimes you just have to do things, and then once it's over, it's great. <laughs> Shelby Hackett studied outdoor education at school and is one of the few women now teaching it. The thing outdoor ed gives you that other subjects don't is life skills. You get independence. All our students learn how to cook, set up a tent themselves, got to build confidence and resilience. Even just managing time, like, you know, to be able to go, okay, I'm going away on camp and communicating with their teachers to catch up on work. They're all important life skills that will most likely make them more successful at university than if they just do straight study in a classroom. The reason why like, I think I joined again was because, one, Miss Hackett like, showed that we could have a good time with like, out having our phones next to us. Like, being outside is just like being one with nature. <laughs> you learn a lot of different things. Like, I wouldn't expect that I would have learned anything without my phone because like, it's got a whole bunch of information in it. But being outside and seeing it all is just like... Wow. But it's getting harder for students eager to learn outside the classroom to get involved because of increasing academic pressure. The Victorian Curriculum and Assessment Authority collects data on the number of enrolments for VCE subjects. Figures from 2018 show a drop in outdoor education enrolments the closest students got to finishing high school, with the biggest drop around the time they transitioned from year 11 to year 12. The outdoor ed's not always valued highly academically. Students tend to gravitate towards sciences, in maths, in English, and they're the subjects that are seen for value for later on in life to go to university. The other drawback for outdoor ed is when it's scored as an ATAR for VCE, it usually drops something like seven points. So if they score, say, a raw score of 35 in a unit three, four, might go back to a 28. They look at the drop in the ATAR and they kind of go, oh, it's not worth my time, but I think the life skills they get out of it and the challenges they overcome are worth more than the ATAR score they get at the end. Outdoor education also benefits students who don't know what direction they want to pursue after study. Some of the things are uncomfortable, but part of the learning is being uncomfortable and pushing yourself a little bit outside your comfort zone there in outdoor ed is a great way to kind of taste test a few things and maybe find something that's good for you. You know, maybe you haven't found your niche activity and rock climbing's the thing that you're amazing at. For a subject that's more popular amongst boys, being in an all-girls environment also has its benefits. 
there's that freedom to kind of go, I'm scared and have that emotional breakdown and, you know, cry a little bit and you know that everyone's going to come and support you. I think in a co-ed school it doesn't quite foster the same thing. I felt the pressure to be tough and I couldn't cry and, you know, I had to do the same things that the boys were doing when in reality I didn't have to. I could do it in my own way and in my own time. Meeting a whole bunch of different people, like, girls that I think I'd never speak to before, like, speaking to them now, I'm just like, why was I so, like, mean? Why was I so, like, <laughs> judge a book by its cover? Like, these girls are, like, really nice. And if I didn't have this class with them, I wouldn't have spoken to them. By the end of the day, bonded by overcoming their shared dread, the girls gathered at their campsite, and everyone's hair that was long enough had been braided. They sound like they had a great time. That was Gillian Area reporting. And with special thanks to the students that she spoke to, Bailey Bonanno, uh, Caitlin Irvine and Alicia Rowe from Clonard College. And that is Australia-wide for this Thursday. I hope you're having a lovely evening. I'll speak to you again tomorrow. Cheerio. ABC Listen.